0: Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. As trends in cancer incidents change, preventive and treatment paradigms need to shift with them. The most recent case of this came from the American Cancer Society, who in May changed their screening recommendations for colorectal cancer screening to begin at 45 years old rather than at 50 years old. This change in recommendation stems from a study coming from the University of Colorado that demonstrated increasing incidence of colorectal cancer in patients under age 50. Today, we're sitting down with Andrea Dwyer, the director of the Colorado Cancer Screening Program at the CU Cancer Center and program director at the Colorado School of Public Health. Dwyer was an author on the study that spearheaded this change in screening recommendations. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you, Jamie, for having me. So five years ago, the American Cancer Society recommended that colon cancer screening for those at average risk began at age 50. Since then, what trends and incidents have been observed?
1: Sure. Um, So the American Cancer Society and um, a number of network organizations who are professional orgs that really look at screening guidelines for the average risk population. Um, have over the last 10, 15 years, definitely, and definitely the last five, recommended um, screening at age 50 for colorectal cancer. And I should just recommend and note that that's um, specifically for the average risk population. Um, so age being the biggest risk factor, but really no signs, symptoms, um, and then people who don't have a personal or family history of uh of colorectal cancer or genetic familial syndromes. So that 50 uh, range has definitely been on the books for a bit, but over the last 10 or 15 years, what we have noticed um, is people from 20 to 49 years old definitely seeing an upshot of the number of people both men and women who are um, starting to be diagnosed earlier with uh, colorectal cancer, earlier than age 15. Um, and what's also interesting is that we're also seeing what we consider what, uh, kind of a birth cohort, is that people between the, the early 50 age group are starting to develop cancer much earlier. And although they you know, make up uh, about 5% of the overall percentage of cancers, uh, colorectal cancers diagnosed, What we're ultimately finding is that their um, mortality rate in that group is quite high. So I think that um, essentially looking at uh, before age 50 and then right at that age 50 and early age 50, we're definitely seeing increases um, over the last decade. And uh, that's definitely something that's taken into consideration now uh, based on even average risk population screening guidelines.
0: And have there been any identified reasons behind the increase in people at a younger age being diagnosed with colorectal cancer? Um, and, and that's a great
1: question. I think that's exactly where we are at, at this current time in, uh, you know, early 2019, is now that we've recommended and are actually uh, identified these sort of upshot and uh, increase, that it's not anecdotal. Uh, we've seen uh, publications about the incidence rates. Uh, Rebecca Siegel from the American Cancer Society and others who've done um, great exploratory work in this area Have really noticed this increase and I think what we're noticing also and particularly based on um, some data from 2015-2018 is that you know, really the physical activity rates haven't changed alcohol intake hasn't changed amongst um, People in in this sort of general category, Um, you know, we really look at inherited susceptibility So genetic familial linkages, those are kind of the common factors that have kind of remained stable, I think, when we look at it. But what we have seen is probably overall an increase in obesity, uh, pre-diabetic situations that actually have different connections possibly to pathways for development of chlorophyll cancer. Um, We've actually seen maybe some other lifestyle changes like meat consumption increasing possibly. Um, And then we've also really actually seen what we think might be uh, more people even being screened between age 40 and 49. So that might actually uh, be part of the reason that we're seeing this increase overall. But in, in truth, I think that for the people that we really have no idea what that linkage to the colorectal cancer uh, connection is right now, also known as sporadic cancer, that's a real quagmire. And I think from a research perspective, um, it's something that we're really exploring about what are those reasons. But that gives you a hint of uh, if really kind of what's going on. On the flip, I think we are seeing definitely decreasing in smoking um, use and other, uh, other types of behavior that are actually seen as improvements that were otherwise thought to cause. But again, um, with all of these factors in play, we are going to have to start studying some of the novel um, approaches and ideas that have been put forth uh, to really see what this connection is. And so, in general, with some of the colorectal cancer um, that we've looked at for early age onset, We could probably say that about 80% of it, we're not quite sure where it's connected, where it's coming from, but based on some of the studies that have been done, um, we know that about 20% of that we do have connections and that's really connected to some familial and hereditary syndromes such as Lynch syndrome, um, some other syndromes as well. So I think right now, you know, we're really from a research perspective trying to figure out the why uh, connected to some of what we already know, but we're also really thinking critically about for the things that we do know related to the colorectal cancer risk, how do we really start changing behavior in terms of people um, being screened earlier, knowing the signs and symptoms, if being seen, um, be a provider if they are symptomatic and the like. So that gives you just a little bit of a kind of where we are at current time, but excellent research opportunity right now to help save more lives.
0: Right. I think it's actually really interesting that in addition to these lifestyle um, factors, you also mentioned that people at a younger age might also be getting screened more, which could impact the number of people being diagnosed. So you were an author on a study where you took these new numbers of young colorectal cancer patients into account. So can you give some more detail on how you incorporated these numbers and how that guided your screening recommendations? Absolutely. Um, so I'd like to give you know credit
1: to a lot of the researchers in the Netherlands, um, as well as uh, Dr. Ann Zauber and team at Memorial Stone kettering and the American Cancer Society who helped commission the work. Um, And I specifically, uh, from the experience working in the field and also with um, an advocacy organization Fight Colorectal Cancer, entered into these discussions. And and really, when you you talk about the screening guidelines um, and then the the study that we helped uh, actually put into play to change the guidelines, it's important to know a few few things about guidelines and um, how they're developed. Uh, the American Cancer Society has a guideline. The USPSTF, also known as United States Pre- uh, Services Preventive Services Task Force. Um, has a guideline, and there's a number of professional organizations that also have guidelines related to average-risk population as well as high-risk populations, but the guidelines that we're talking about um, specifically to, uh, you know, lowering the age to 45 is specifically the American Cancer Society guideline for average-risk population, and what's um, really I think intrinsic is to know that USPSTF has used a modeling design Um, And it's called the MISCAN model that they have used over the past decade to make recommendations about screening guidelines um, through their very, very dedicated, uh, very time-sensitive process. And it's a very deliberate approach because it takes a lot of time, a lot of sensitivity to what type of uh, studies and, and information and data are put into these models to give us the best um, idea of what we can expect for risk and benefit based on screening. And so ultimately that MISCAN model has been in existence to help not only inform uh, the American Cancer Society guideline that was recently changed um, in 2018, but it's also the same model that USPSTF has used over uh, again for about the last decade. When USPSTF put out their major guideline a couple of years ago, the new data Um, that had become available about the the incidents and the like had not been available. And so when they put out their most recent recommendation back in, I think it's 2016-ish, it still recommended population-based screening at age 50. What this new data and the modeling studies that we worked upon with the lead of um, Elika Peters from the Netherlands and Zauber We used the same MISCAN model that had been used for um, those other guidelines and actually incorporated this new incidence data to help us give, give better clues about the here and now Um, where we would really see that really great equilibrium between benefit and uh, burden of of screening. And so ultimately, with those new data and the results from that MISCAN model and us doing these sort of um, uh, modeling approaches in our study, we did um, basically have that kind of data to present to the American Cancer Society that made a really strong case about beginning at age 45 years old as opposed to screening at age 50 years old. And I think what's important to also note is that if you look at the data, ultimately when we see the risk of developing colorectal cancer 15 years ago for 50-year-olds, that risk is ultimately what we see for 45-year-olds today. So it's interesting that we have seen this increase in colorectal cancer incidence and mortality. We put that into the data uh, set, the MISCAN model that had already been utilized in other studies um, with the most updated and really came to a different conclusion, meaning uh, starting at age 45. So that's really kind of a simplified uh, aspect of really ultimately what we we found uh, using that new data and the processes that we use to help inform the American Cancer Society uh, screening guidelines.
0: So before we get into the lowered screening age, for some background, can you just give some information on how often does a colonoscopy detect colorectal cancer and what exceptions are there to the screening age? I know earlier you mentioned family history, so are there any other risk factors where patients would get screened earlier? Absolutely.
1: Um, and I, I just want to say at the beginning um, that ultimately there are, are a number of different types of screening modalities for colorectal cancer. And ultimately, when we look at this, um, colonoscopy, which is the invasive procedure that really allows um, for full visualization and even removal of polyps and the like, um, I think it's oftentimes considered the gold standard. We actually, um, it's been estimated that we can see about a 60 to 80% uh, reduction in mortality um, when utilizing uh, a test like colonoscopy. And it's definitely the test that should be utilized for patients who are at high risk. And so I made that distinction between population and average risk individuals. So average risk individuals are really folks who have no sign symptoms or symptomatic, but moreover do not have a family history, a personal history or genetic um, connection to uh, colorectal cancer. Um, particularly, but if you do have that high risk, the colonoscopy is the type of test that you actually absolutely should have based on your risk um, your risk category. Now if your average risk population, which makes up the variety or the majority of folks uh, throughout the country, the um, American Cancer Society as well as the USPSTF guideline, both recommend um, not only colonoscopy, but there are stool-based tests which actually can detect um, specific blood and hemoglobin in the, um, in the stool. And if someone is noted to have that type of test, they will automatically then go to colonoscopy. But it's definitely a good screening test for folks. And if done every year, a FIT and F-O-B-T stool-based test We've actually seen um, if it's followed every year that that sort of testing is administered, we can see an overall about a 30% reduction in mortality, and it's a great alternative to colonoscopy for people who either can't afford it, can't access it, or just simply don't want to have a colonoscopy because it's an invasive uh, procedure. I think the other um, type of stool-based testing, which has shown great promise, um, has been, I know, all over the airwaves is also the stool DNA um, testing, where they can not only uh, detect the hemoglobin, but they can actually see other types of DNA and cellular change. And that test um, is really something that should be done every three to five years and uh, Medicare does pay for that, and I should also say that some private insurances, but that's actually shown great scientific um, advancement in the field of screening. And, and then you have other tests like virtual colonoscopy, which requires insufflation of air and CT imaging that's also on the recommended screening guideline, um, as well as well as flex. Uh, flexible sigmoidoscopy, which does also see part of the colon, and and it's not a full examination to the full end of the colon where the cecum um, begins and the the small bowel begins, but those are a a number of options, and I think what we have to remember is that if we're going to reach the um, American Cancer Society and the National Clorical Roundtable's Goal of reaching 80%, we really are going to have to look, um, especially the average risk population, at not just colonoscopy. We're going to need to look at those stool based tests, the FIT DNA, uh, the, the FIT FOBT, and then even in certain situations, flex foot. Flexible sigmoidoscopy, as well as a virtual colonoscopy, definitely play a role in the whole schematic of screening. But again, knowing your risk is critical. Um, Average risk population, any of those types of tests that I mentioned are definitely something if followed in the time uh, frame, can definitely reduce uh, mortality, uh, reduce incidence, but colonoscopy is the gold standard if someone is high risk. And I I think that one of the things that we're also noting for early age onset is that there's also um, family members who aren't necessarily sharing um, their personal or or, um, their family history of colorectal cancer and other types of cancer. And so that's something that I, I, I should just say that immediately, that we know that we could absolutely reduce reduce, um, death and mortality from colorectal cancer if people do know their family history, regardless of age, but particularly for early age onset, if we do something about that, um, identify people who've had Lynch syndrome, identify people who have um, family history of colorectal cancer, your recommendation to begin screening, even without the screening recommendation, can begin um, as early as in your late teens and early 20s. So really knowing this is is critical, and so we want to just say the population guidelines we're talking about today are for average risk, but as you noted, if it's an increased risk in families, um, you can oftentimes begin screening 10 years before there's a diagnosis of a colorectal cancer within a first-degree family member, so that's a mom, dad, sister, brother. Um, You can begin screening 10 years before they were diagnosed. And even time, um, 10 years before they were found to even have a polyp that might actually develop as and become colorectal cancer, also known as an adenoma. So those increased risks will really, really stratify who needs what type of test um, and then what uh, frequency they need to start even well before 50.
0: Right. So like your study suggested, they're recommending screening age is now 45. So it's kind of a loaded question, but how big of an impact will this change have?
1: Um, that's a great question. And so here, here's what I'm going to say is that the American Cancer Society and um, uh, along with several of the other researchers and folks who were really engaged in this, um, informing the guideline on a lot of levels. Uh, from the studying to the modeling um, to basically using the data, it was a really um, it was a really deliberate decision to change to 45. And and I think that when I when I talk about this, what I think we know is that at age 50 right now we aren't seeing the number of people being screened um, at age 50 when they are when they previously were really recommended for screening. So by moving this um, age range back to 45. We think that people will start having the conversation sooner. Uh, we will start thinking that people will actually begin screening um, at least by age 50 if not by 45. Um, we do know that it will make that kind of uh, impact and that, that it's not just about having that conversation so people do it by 40, by 50. There is good data to suggest that even by age 45 this should be happening. But then, even if folks don't begin right at 45, maybe we'll start. We will start to see that uptake by at least age 50, because those curves, again, even at age 50, with the current recommendation up till last year, with uh, before the guideline, we didn't necessarily see people just jumping in the saddle to be screened straight away. So we're hoping that that will really take care of what we're considering. Um, some of the biggest risk is people between 50 and 55 years old who aren't getting screened but are developing uh, colorectal cancer at a higher uh, rate than before. That will help. Um, that Moving that 45 will help really take care of some of that. Um, And I think the other thing, though, to remember is that the American Cancer Society guideline is one guideline. We know that some insurance plans will follow the ACS guideline, but we also know that the uh, USPSTF has not changed their guideline yet. And they're going through their normal course of uh, data review um, and really thinking about updating their guideline, but that hasn't happened yet. What's interesting is that while you know a number of folks will follow ACS guidelines um, for prevention, um, a lot of the insurance companies, including a number of of Medicaid providers throughout different states and private insurance plans, largely follow the USPSTF guideline. So what we have right now is a little bit of a um, discrepancy and starting at 45 uh, versus age 50, and so we, um, the uh, National Clerk Roundtable, a number of organizations are really trying to think about rectifying that and making sure that we don't confuse um, the public around re- really the risk and the like, but I think what we'll see um, is a deliberate and a very focused review from USPSTF um, about the data about um, the MISCAN model and the results and what that ultimately does for their guideline as well So we're hoping that we see um, more harmony there But again, I think one of the, the things that everyone agrees is that at least starting that messaging um, by uh, mid 40s if not even earlier about getting screened so that as minimum people start at 45 Um, And even into that 50, we are going to make huge gains in terms of reduction of, of, uh, of colorectal cancer incidence.
0: Great. And so as you mentioned, ACS is just one set of guidelines. So even though the recommended age from ACS is now 45, not all insurance companies are covering screening at the age. So what do you think is needed for these insurance companies to start doing so? Do you think USPSTF, when they update their recommendations, that'll help or it just takes more time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I
1: do think that because um, a number of the groups, as I mentioned previously, do have that connection and their policy is to follow the USPSTF guideline, um, single-handedly I think that's probably going to make the biggest impact um, about whether we see this big, big shift to 45 overall. Um, So that's single-handedly probably the biggest impact. Um, And I do think that, uh, you know, they are going through that process. I know a number of organizations are, are um, advocating towards uh, this kind of change like ACS has had, um, but there's other groups who really don't feel that moving to 45 is going to make um, that much of an impact. So I think there's some really healthy um, conversations right now about where this fits and what that looks like. But in terms of having good conversations, I think we also think at the individual level, we really need to think a little bit about our own personal health. And um, as the patient level, I think that in there's policies about what's covered um, for preventive services and out-of-pocket and the like. But I think the other thing that we all can do is, is that moving to this 45- We should start the balance of having more conversations with family members. If we're having signs and symptoms, we've got to be seen earlier. um, And we have to have that doctor patient um, and clinical provider conversation. And I think that ultimately we should really aim as a medical community, public health community, guideline community to make sure that that's front and center. Um, So, you know, insurance will play a huge role in terms of like which policy they cover. Um, Based on which guideline and again that's going to make the biggest impact in some respect based on coverage and and payment Which is huge, but I do also think that having and opening up the conversation uh, With providers about our own risk our own personal health our own family history um, and our overall wellness to begin thinking about when we ultimately all start screening is probably front and center just as much as um, any sort of guideline change
0: Right. It seems like that it's not just the insurance companies who kind of have to get on board, it's the public. Because as you mentioned, even at the age of 50, not everyone was starting at the age of 50. So it seems like, as you mentioned, conversations really need to be had so that people understand that they need to go. It's not just getting coverage for it. It's changing the perception that this is what has to be done. The so one thing I would also
1: just say is I think we're seeing a shift in the primary care providers as well, and um, being more deliberate about capturing family history and risk factors. Right. And I think we're going to have to continue to see that uh, that trajectory but you know there's one study that actually suggests um even that and we're going to have to really kind of think about this in a shared responsibility amongst all of us but there's a study that even suggests that for people who had present present with signs or symptoms or a need for screening earlier than age 50 that half the time um in a previous study done a couple of years ago that half the time Uh, docs and and clinical providers maybe didn't make that recommendation. But there's also data to suggest that half the time when those physicians and clinical team did make a recommendation about colonoscopy and additional screening that a patient didn't follow up. And so, again, I think this just shows that shared responsibility um, and its insurance, it's the uh, doctor-patient and clinical team relationship, and there's a lot to be said about, like, knowing um, and personal responsibility and also your responsibility to your family to talk about what's going on uh, to preserve, you know, the, the ultimate family and individual health.
0: Right. And so for patients who don't have access to a colonoscopy or another form of colorectal screening because of insurance coverage or because they've just chosen not to be screened up until this point, what efforts has the state of Colorado launched in order to improve this? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I think
1: Colorado is one state. Um, he's doing Uh, some dedicated outreach. I do think nationally, the Centers for Disease Control um, with their funding for colorectal cancer and other preventive screening have done a tremendous amount, Um, but particularly for folks who uh, need to be screened, regardless of the screening recommendation, um, there is, and particularly for the medically underserved, there's a lot of times fear, um, there's inability and barrier issues, transportation, even in in a state like Colorado that's large and rural. Um, there's things that come up, but there's even um, basically basic education about the type of the body, uh, the part of the body, um, what, it, what it means to be screened. So these are all things that can be um, barriers, but there are huge opportunities for patient education and for barrier reduction. So the state of Colorado, for the last decade, um, we've implemented a statewide program called the Colorado Cancer Screening Program for patient navigation, where we put dedicated efforts into uh, Navigators working with patients to overcome barriers, help with transportation assistance, um, barriers whether they're uh, psychosocial as well as other really logistic barriers such as child care, elder care, um, in things like co-pays and the like and help with education around bowel preparation and even understanding, again, about, you know, the colon, the rectum, educating about parts of the body and then the types of screening modalities. So I think that um, we, among several other states in the country, were some of the first to implement statewide um, programs that really looked at this sort of interventions and then CDC again has done a masterful job of uh, including this type of work throughout I almost think um, about at least 30 states throughout the country at this time but when we see these sort of interventions for patient navigation it will provide access to colonoscopy but I think what it also does it also educates the consumer and patient about the opportunity for fit and FOBT testing for different types of testing um, as well and part of that might be um, around paying out of pocket, but part of that is just also what is really the capacity to be seen in certain regions, areas, as well as what kind of uh, test is really amenable to the circumstances of the patient. And so I think while, you know, colonoscopy sometimes can be thought to be expensive, with the expansion of Medicaid, we've definitely seen greater access in states like Colorado, uh, but there still are people who can't afford that as well. So our program has definitely um, done a lot to educate around FIT and FOBT, which don't cost as much money out of pocket. Um, In particularly for people who are symptomatic or need colonoscopies, looking at in-kind services with the support of navigation in our health centers. Um, So these are kind of the things that we look at in terms of a statewide program and implementation, which has been funded um, by our uh, CCPD, our Cancer Cardiovascular Pulmonary Disease Grants Program in the state, and other states have funding from CDC as well as as us. But I think these sort of evidence-based approaches like patient navigation have opened up opportunity to increase screening overall. And so if you look at the impact that we've had in Colorado over the last decade, When we looked at overall our baseline um, screening rates with our medically underserved, which are typically our safety net clinics that we work with, we know that our screening rates um, for those clinic systems were at about 18 to 20% of the population who were eligible to be screened based on the um, guidelines that were really in adherence with guidelines. But then if you look 10 years later, We've almost doubled that, and so we're somewhere around 40 to almost 50 percent in some clinic systems, um, and then hovering around the 35 to 40 percent overall. So making, you know, ultimately doubling our uh, screening rates over the last decade is huge. We have a lot of uh, room um, to continue to go forward. But what I would also say is that also by including things like navigation and other evidence-based interventions, um, when we have had the colonoscopy uh, capacity, which is what our program has focused upon, we were actually, um, when implementing the program, we were seeing no-show rates sometimes greater than um, 50 to 75% of the time, and patients weren't showing up prepared and adequately prepped for their exams. Um, But with 10 years of data, we know that our no-show rate with patients who are navigated Um, is uh, actually less than 10%, and we know that about 98% of the time, based on the endoscopy reports of those people who've been navigated, they actually are able to visualize the colon and their endoscopy uh, procedures are completed, and so that's ultimately um, definitely helping patients, it's helping the healthcare community and we're really seeing great impact and even seeing great return on investment of these evidence-based approaches. And again, I think Colorado is one state who's done this, and we were some of the uh, first to begin, but we've definitely seen uh, uh, fantastic examples all throughout the country of these types of interventions.
0: So I'm sure you've gotten this question before where someone will ask, well, there are people who are diagnosed with colorectal cancer under the age of forty five so, why not lower the screen age to, say, 25, but why would that create more harm than benefit? Um, that's a great question, um, and I did mention kind of that benefit to burden earlier
1: on, and I think what's important to remember is that, you know, the, there is still a great number of folks um, who are in need of colonoscopy, and it is an invasive procedure, and so there is some attributed risk, of either perforating or, you know, basically, in layman's term, poking a hole in the bowel with the the colonoscope, um, having adverse reactions. Um, We know that even with FitNepoBT, even though they're great tests, on occasion there can be false positives, false negatives, and so, one of the things that I think we have to really think about is ultimately what is the risk to the patient given some of the things I've just mentioned, and where do we start based on their risk? And ultimately, is the risk of the procedure and risk of um, doing the procedure based on their ultimate susceptibility to disease? What is that fine balance? And so, when we did these studies, um, we came up with 45 based on the modeling recommendations and the like, and ultimately. 45 was that sweet spot of sort. If you start these recommendations at screening for a risk group um, well before 20 years that we show that kind of benefit to burden ratio, you actually could actually put people in risk, um, in risk way. and I think that's one part of it. But I think the other thing is for population-based screening standards, which that 45 years is is about, um, that's really like focusing on the average average Joe on the street, like what's happening with them, and they don't have any other background and history. And so I think that we're having a hard enough time for people who are even from the health benefit side at 45 and 50 getting people screened, starting to tell 25-year-olds who may not show that same sort of list, uh, risk that they need to be screened, it just doesn't really make sense from a health promotion and public health messaging uh, standpoint. So that's the other side um, of that that component as well. Um, And then I do also think that it comes to a matter of resources. Um, Population-based screening guidelines are really based on what resources are available within the population to screen based on the risk uh, uh, category. So we might be spending, if we moved a, a guideline down to 25 years old, We might be putting a lot of resources into people who really aren't at risk and then leaving out um, folks who might be at greater risk based on the age continuum. So those are three discrete things that we really kind of put into play when we're thinking about these guidelines based on average risk. But I want to reemphasize that that's average. Um, We're not talking about the folks who have family history. We're not talking about genetic predisposition or signs and symptoms because there are 25-year-olds who are being diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And I think that's the thing that we've got to remember. There are guidelines for people who are at high risk who are very young. And that's when you need to know all the things that I mentioned about like sitting around, having a beer with your family or having a Thanksgiving dinner. Talking about these things actually might save your life. So if you're you have the signs and symptoms, you got to talk to your doctor. I would advocate for screening. If you know that someone in your family has been diagnosed with colorectal cancer at any age, start having that conversation about when that happened and bring that back information to your healthcare provider because that's when we know 25-year-olds should be screened and that should not be ignored because that's why we're seeing um, such great incidence and mortality in such age groups as young as 25.
0: Right, and so... As cancer paradigms continue to change and incidence continues to change, how often do you think researchers should look at cancer incidence to update screening recommendations? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And I work
1: with biflueractyl cancer, um, an advocacy group, in addition to my academic and public health work at the University of Colorado. And I would say this. Um, this is something that's actually been more of an emotional issue for the last couple of years now that I've interfaced with so many survivors. Um, advocates as well as people who've lost kiddos that are super young. Um, what I would say is a guideline review, guideline change should not be taken uh, lightly. It is a lot of time, it's a lot of effort. The American Cancer Society and others even have a threshold of types of studies that they will allow to help um, inform the data. And so going through that kind of approach is also very, very deliberate. It's exhaustive and the like. It shouldn't be taken um, lightly. I think the USPSTF guideline folks have put in a very um, deliberate approach and a standpoint um, at which time they will review guidelines. So that's on an every five year uh, cycle. And I, to be, to be honest, I mean, I think the academic um, part of me sees that need for very uh, stringent guideline type approach. And I think ultimately I would sway um, that a guideline review every uh, five years probably on average is something that does make sense for the amount of time, energy, and what needs to be taken into consideration. Having that said, um, when I do think there's new data sets that come out, um, like such as the information that Becky Siegel put forward by ACS, and there's new data to really show um, that there is an upshot in incidence, and we are seeing these sort of dramatic trends, I do think that it's um, probably up to every group who's creating a guideline, professional societies, ACS, USPSTF, to stop and reflect on their current processes and what makes sense. Um, because I think that is a bit more subjective. And what I would say is that um, that when the USPSTF put out their guideline a couple years back, that was right before um, the incidence data had actually become available. And so I think they're being very prudent and deliberate, deliberate about taking that into consideration um, for their cycle. But I do think that, you know, following a regiment, um, to be sure that that's trusted information and that the U.S. public can, uh, still, uh, really have faith in the medical and guideline community. We have to have an amount of rigor, um, and to keep probably pretty, uh, authentic and deliberate with that approach. But I think there are, as uh, exceptions with anything. And I think, this specific incidence um, and data mortality information that came forward is one of those things that probably gives us pause to maybe think about maybe reviewing a guideline a little sooner than later.
0: Great, well thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, I really
1: appreciate this and um, really appreciate all this work and hopefully it will lead to great things in terms of decrease of colorectal cancer, uh, incidence, mortality and impact on life. Thank you, Jamie, I really appreciate it.
0: To read more on cancer screening, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. You can get in touch with us by emailing info at AJMC.com or following us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And finally, if you like the podcast, don't forget to read and subscribe.